regional integration, question mark. And we have in this panel, in first place, Alicia Garcia-Herrero, senior fellow from Bruegel and associate member to El Cano Royal Institute. Welcome, Garcia, Alicia. Do you hear me? A ver. Hola, Carlos. Hello, everybody. Hello. Second place, Tobias Lenz from Liga Institute. And in third place, Matthias Jorgensen. He didn't arrive yet. Head of Uni Latin America of Digitrade. In our Turbona Global contact context, the question is there are room to improve a new type of regional integration, specifically in the European Union and in Latin America. And we have a lot of questions regarding the first issue. First of all, how the action and the competition of the two major international actors, the US and China, affect our two regions. In second place, and regarding specifically the EU, what will happen with Brexit, the migration crisis, and the future of the Eurozone? In this context, the good news is that the outcome of the European elections and the new European Parliament doesn't uh, allow the existence of a majority of blockade. That is a good news. But also we have questions regarding Latin America. And what happens with the impact of the Venezuelan crisis, the Venezuela crisis? Probably the Venezuela crisis is the biggest crisis in the last two centuries in the region, the impact could affect all the countries and the regional stability. What happened with the emergence of new governments as in Mexico or Brazil and the future of the Pacific Alliance on the one hand and of Mercosur on the other? Finally, what will happen with the bilateral relation? We saw, we saw in the last years the blockade of the CELAC, and that this blockade, mainly due to the Venezuela position regarding the regional equilibrium, that this blockade freeze the main and formal mechanism of the regional relation, that is the EU-CELAC summit. So the question is if there are some alternatives to block, so, so, sorry, to back the reestablishment or the formal reestablishment of the relation. The non-formal 
relation goes as usual. Investment, trade, academic relations, scientific relations, technology, etc. But the formal mechanism doesn't work in our days. Well, we'll be began with Alicia. Alicia, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Carlos. Thank you, Carlos. Uh, I'm, going uh, I'm going to show uh, just a few slides. Just a few slides. I'm going to try to make it work. Let me know if you can see the material. In a second. In a second. Um, share screen. Share screen. Let me see. So can you see the slides now? So can you now? see the slides now? Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hello. Hello. Yes, Alicia, we hear you. Uh, okay. And uh, okay. And could you see the slides? Because I just stopped them. Could you see the slides? I put them back since you were not, <laughs> since you were not responding. I, I yeah. thought it, would, it was not working. Does it work now? Yes. It's all, all okay. Okay, great. So you probably can't see me. You can only see the slides. Is that right? We see you too. Wow, that's impressive. I can only see my slides and not you, but that's fine. I will talk to myself uh, for the time being. It will, I will be very brief. Um, I just wanted, I mean, there's so many things, Carlos, you have mentioned that it would be impossible in the available time to, to discuss them all. And what I'll do is I'll just focus on a couple of issues and I leave the rest for questions and answers or interaction uh, among the panel. So I just wanted to basically try to make the best use of my expertise. I um, uh, basically covering, covering the impact of China in the world in the light of Latin American regional integration. And this is why I'm going to start with um, China's impact in, in regional uh, trade uh, uh, integration in or trade patterns basically in, in the region. And then I'm going to move to WTO reform very briefly. Um, which are the two key trade uh, integration type of issues that I want to cover. So on the first uh, one, I think by going through everything that has happened in terms of trade negotiations in the region uh, while preparing this presentation, I was really impressed to see how quickly China is moving in, in in agreeing on, on new free trade uh, agreements, um, of course, Chile, Costa Rica, Peru, working with Panama and Uruguay at the moment. Um, we, of course, are, if we look at the number of them further ahead, but we also know that uh, it's taken us very long to renegotiate agreements. This would be the case of uh, Mexico. Um, and of course, uh, even more so uh, in first instance, the case of Mercosur. So basically, if one looks at this list, one could start to see that even in the what I would call the traditional uh, sense of integration, or at least trade integration through free trade agreements, 
um, China is being, China is being more agile, more agile uh, than, uh, than probably we are or others are. And I'm not putting the US in this picture, focusing on China and, and Europe. But beyond trade, but beyond trade agreements, agreements and, and this is the key um, point, um, there's many more aspects of integration, as I'm sure there are in Europe too. We, we had this previous panel discussing that, but I want to really focus on on China's um, attempts to further integrate or, or further collaborate or further cooperate or further profit, maybe I should say, from the region uh, through uh, one of its key soft power instruments so far, which is the Belt and Road Initiative. So when one looks at the map, map of the Belt and Road Initiative, you already have um, uh, Africa in the map, um, but you do not yet see how quickly China has basically embarked in extending this concept well beyond uh, this this very famous map map that we all uh, know about. And basically, this, the countries, as you probably know, are Bolivia, Chile, Ecuador, Peru, Uruguay, Venezuela. And I'm, and I'm sure Tanama won't take too long to appear in, in, in this list. And on top of this relatively, uh, I wouldn't say informal, but hub to spoke strategy, I, uh, Bolivia with uh, China, Chile with China, I mean, that, that have unspoke approach to uh, cooperation in the infra space in particular. And when I say infra, um, I, I can show you later, I don't have the slides, but, uh, but in, if anybody's interested, I can share that most of that infra connectivity that China is financing in the region is actually energy related. 60% of um, China's investment in infrastructure in the region. I, I should actually say project finance because it's not investment. These countries actually own the, money to own the money to China and they need to repay at some point. But 60% is energy related. So um, beyond that hub and spoke approach to, as I said, integration or infra cooperation, or you name it, um, we have to remember that there is, there is also a more formal multilateral approach, which also relates to Latin America increasingly, notwithstanding the name of this development bank, which is the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, for which already Uruguay is a member. Number, and there's a number of prospect countries in the region, and the list is very long. As you see, there are Argentina, Brazil, Bolivia, Chile, Ecuador, Peru, and Venezuela. So, very long list. And, excuse me. Yeah. You should select the slides that you want to display. We yeah. mostly just see the cover slide and then just tiny thumbnails of the others. Pick, pick, select the slide that you want so that we can see. No, it's okay. That's why I thought someone should tell you. Is that okay now? Perfect. Is that okay now? Okay, sorry. Okay, sorry. Sorry about, sorry about that. Thanks very much. Um, uh, so, so this this is basically the first thing I wanted to say that it's, it's, there is an elephant in the room. We heard that before, which is China's attempt to link Latin America to other integration cooperation projects. The most relevant one being the Belt and Road Initiative, let alone the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank. 
And this may, and this be, may behind, be behind, if you think about, you think about the list of countries I, I mentioned to you, kind of a, of a different map, in a way, of, of potential integration even within the region. So think about, I remember I was then working in, in Washington, something that kind of disappeared from the map. It was basically Brazil-led, which, which Carlos surely remembers, and, and others in, in the room, ALCA, you know, this idea of regional integration at the level of basically everybody in the region then of course uh, mexico was then negotiating nafta and you know it kind of uh, holding uh, the whole alca project didn't work out but there's nothing like that in the region now and the question really is is it because the region doesn't want it or is it because there is centrifugal forces maybe less so the us as was the case for alca i remember well that the us was not very keen on Brazil's leading role in that uh, in, uh, regional integration um, project, but more at this point in time, China. China trying to work on this hub-and-spoke approach, by the way, being European, not very differently from what we are seeing in Europe. And, and this probably would be a very interesting um, point of discussion later. And then I, and then I move very quickly to the second topic I wanted to cover very, very quickly, which is WTO reform. So I just picked a few of the key or the wish list, if I may say, uh, on WTO reform based on, on, a, on a kind of a communique by a number of Latin American experts from a large number of countries uh, at the sidelines of, of, sorry, I said WTO reform, this is wrong, of the G20 meeting in November in Buenos Aires. So if you look at that list, uh, what I want to do with this list is really to compare with our aspirations in Europe. We, we tend to believe that we're kind of um, in the in the in the in the leading role in in this reform, and that we 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 have made it very clear what we think the reform should be. And I'm, I wouldn't go as far as saying we think others should follow, but you know, I guess many countries in the world probably would go as far as saying that. Being European, I refrain from saying that. But but the point is, what are these Latin American countries expecting from WTO reform? And you start seeing some cracks compared to our aspirations. First of all, um, well, the first is obvious, transparency, but look at the second, control and subsidies, sure, but with some limits, only the, the worst ones, basically. Then you look at... Um, Control of unfair competitive practices of state, but also private companies. So, you know, there's a different uh, reading of the role of SOEs. Somehow, it, any company could do this. It doesn't have to be state-owned. Think about the still very relevant state-owned ownership of most energy uh, companies in Latin America. So, so we, we think it's only China, but of course, many emerging economies have interest in keeping their, their state-owned ownership in, in strategic sectors. So, of course, they remind us uh, that, you know, agriculture should be at the core of the reform. We tend to not to be so, so clear on that front. And, um, and yeah, and, and, and next page, if it just serves the purpose of comparing our proposal with that of Latin American uh, countries, at least the ones that I just referred to as key um, economies, I guess, representing their countries. Uh, which I could find. 
So we are tougher on subsidies, we're tougher on SOEs, we're tougher on digital trade, regulation of digital trade, they're tougher on agriculture. And they also mention um, that they would very much like to see some special treatment on the basis that some of them, if not all, can still be considered emerging economies. And by the way, if China claims, as we all know it does, that it should still be considered an emerging economy for that matter the whole region should be claiming the same thing because by now literally uh, income per capita in in, in countries as, as uh, rich for for at least for uh, in, in, within the region as mexico is very similar to china today so so what i'm trying to say here is that how 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 close are we in in this endeavor of WTO reform? Maybe not as much as we think. And again, going back to the uh, original uh, intention of my presentation here, which is looking at um, both our I mean, Latin American regional integration, but also that with Europe. The elephant in the room, i.e. China, comes in many fronts, comes in terms of uh, trade relations, comes in terms of investment. I covered that topic last year, so I don't want to repeat myself, but but although China is not the largest by far investor in terms of stock in Latin America, not even flow of M&A, and I, I fully agree with Elena on this point, we are the investors, but they lend, they lend massively. They do not own the banks, with the, the exception of a, a standard bank in Argentina, but they lend cross-border. They, um, they lend through their policy banks for the key projects they want to invest, and these tend to be strategic projects. On the lending side, just to give you a sense, um, I said project finance is mainly uh, energy. Um, um, on the lend on 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 the pure cross border side, there is a lot of um, sorry on the on the uh, M and side there is mainly on the elect on the utility sector, and uh, finally there is hardly any greenfield investment from China into Latin America, while there is a lot of greenfield investment in Africa. So it's a totally different ball game. And uh, and again, final point on WTO reform, which we could argue, well, maybe we're closer. China's influence is really creeping. It is getting there because the expectations of a different treatment for being an, still an emerging economy, perhaps not so much of an issue on SOEs or subsidies, is starting to uh, appear in the demands uh, of Latin American countries. And I've not done the research, but I can imagine that this is true for many other uh, emerging economies. So it's going to be tough in, in a nutshell for Europe to, uh, to push for um, WTO reform on, on the basis of what we have in mind at the moment. So I leave it here, Carlos. Thank you very much um, for your time. Thank you, Alicia. And now Tobias. Thank you. Um, thanks for inviting me to present at this panel. And uh, I think my presentation is nicely complementary to what Alicia said. She talked a little bit about the content of the various initiatives of regional integration that we've seen in Latin America, whereas I will focus more on the institutional issues and the kind of broader structural issues that accompany um, Latin American regional integration. And now my intervention will focus mainly on the Pacific Alliance 
but I'll talk implicitly also about other regional schemes, and we can pick that up in, in the Q&A. I mean, the Pacific Alliance, I think, is a, is a good example of what is supposedly a new type of regional integration. And uh, it has two main characteristics which make it somewhat distinct from other Latin American integration initiatives that we know that are still around. A, it is more informal in nature. That is less strongly institutionalized. And that comes with certain advantages and disadvantages that I'm going to get into a little bit. The second key characteristic is that it is mainly, or much more than other regional organizations, oriented towards the outside, towards building bridges, mainly to the Asia-Pacific. Um, and that also has certain advantages, but brings with it certain costs. And I want to kind of lay out the benefits and, and say, issues or difficulties uh, that come with the specific institutional character or nature of, of the Pacific Alliance. I'm going to give away my punchline and come back to it at the end. I do believe, as, as do many other observers, that the uh, Pacific Alliance is a promising tool uh, especially to connect Latin America economically with um, some of the countries in the Asia-Pacific. But at the same time, I also want to suggest that it will have to change as it moves forward. It's unlikely to stay um, and maintain the same characteristics that it has now. Okay, on, on my first point. So the Pacific Alliance is largely an informal organization. Um, and that basically means kind of two things. One is that it is placed or based on explicitly shared expectations and understandings about what the purpose of the organization is, but it's not really rooted in formal treaties um, or based in international law to the same extent than our other regional organizations. Um, so. The PA, as you know, was inaugurated in 2011 by the convention of the four presidents of Chile, Peru, Colombia, and, and Mexico. Um, and the common purpose of the initiative was basically to achieve the free movements of goods, services, capital, and, and labor uh, among the four countries. Um, yet these expectations, as I briefly mentioned, are not really codified in international law, with the partial exception of the framework agreement signed in 2012. But really the organization evolves um, through a sequence of presidential declarations and other types of non-binding documents, such as memoranda of understanding, um, that respond in large parts to political expediency. So in many ways, the organization is carried forward by the political will of the highest leaders of these four countries. Um, it's largely based on regular meetings between high-level officials, the presidential summits being an important part. There's also a Council of Ministers, which encompasses foreign ministers as well as ministers of the economy, as well as a whole range of working groups, 25. Um, by now, that regularly meet and, and kind of agree on the substance of cooperation. But none of this is really legally binding um, in, in the sense of international law. And then finally, the organization is not heavily institutionalized, as this implies. It does not have a regional secretariat, for example. It does not have an institutionalized dispute settlement arrangement like Mercosur does, like the Andean communities do, uh, community does. Um, so it's a very intergovernmental coordination mechanism uh, with a key role played by the rotating presidency. 
and this institutional, this informal institutional structure has some advantages. Um, uh, the primary one of which is that it's more flexible, right? It's much easier to kind of change the procedures and also the substance of cooperation in such a shallowly institutionalized arrangement than it would be in a more heavily institutionalized one. Decision-making speed is generally quicker. Um, because less fewer actors are involved and adjustments to changing political priorities is also easier. In addition, there is fewer or lower organizational costs. You don't have to pay the, the salaries of bureaucrats and tribunals or general secretariats. And important also in the Latin American context, it's easier to maintain national sovereignty so the informal arrangement that the PA is, is largely sovereignty preserving. That is, it only moves as fast as the slowest member uh, among the four states is willing to proceed, right? All decisions are taken by consensus or unanimity. There is no independent agents that interfere with the pure will of the political actors in that process. Um, <clears throat> so it maintains national, national sovereignty. I think the main, and these are important um, important advantages, especially at a time when the political context, both within Latin America but also world, worldwide, is kind of rather volatile. Things happen quickly, crises come and go, and in that context it's quite useful to be able to react quickly to emerging challenges and changing priorities. Right? The main disadvantage that I see of this type of structure, which makes me think that it'll be difficult to maintain such a low level of institutionalization, is that the success of the arrangement depends very much on the cohesiveness of the political group or the member states themselves. So to operate on the basis of, of non-binding agreements, largely non-binding agreements, um, driven forward by agreements with among the presidents of the member states means that the presidents themselves have to agree, have to agree on the basic ideas and purposes of the organization. So as soon as a single state changes its priorities, um, is, becomes more skeptical, say, of the free trade outlook that the PA tries to promote, that type of institutional structure is, is very quickly in the danger of, of being stalled. Um, I mean, take an example of Duca's election in Colombia in 2018, who was very skeptical of signing additional free trade agreements, right? He put a, he put a stop on that, on that policy, which meant that Colombia at least temporarily withdrew from the negotiation of additional associated memberships in the Pacific Alliance. Um, <clears throat> and so these types of organizations function well when the group is cohesive and the main political actors share a similar ideolo ideological outlook, when that changes um, and you've got different political ideologies sitting around the table, decision-making becomes much more difficult. Uh, and stalemate is, is imminent in that case. So, so much for the informal side. Now, at the outset I said that the second main characteristic of the Pacific Alliance is that it is oriented towards the outside, much more than towards the inside. Generally, the main goal is to facilitate trade or provide public goods within the organization. Think of Mercosur, the Andean community, etc. 
Um, now, the Pacific Alliance is explicitly outward-oriented and wants to build bridges, economic bridges primarily, between Latin America, the Pacific countries, but also other Latin American states and the Asia-Pacific region. So after the financial crisis of 2008-2009, Pacific states kind of recognized that economic growth and economic opportunity was going to come more from Asia, potentially, than from North America and Europe. And so this is part of a broader, say, redirection of, of, of outlook and, and, and connections um, between Latin America. Uh, it's based on a strategy of economic insertion that's quite well known in Latin America based on attracting foreign direct investment through trade agreements and, and economic liberalization. And it contains kind of an interesting element that my colleague at the Giga Detlef Nolt has called nation branding. So besides trade facilitation, it also aims to, uh, to advocate uh, the participating states as being attractive in terms of foreign direct investment. And they do that through a series of kind of small initiatives like, uh, like joint business and investment promotion activities, like a common stock market uh, that they've created, uh, like shared embassies abroad, etc. Um, besides these small activities, a big part of the strategy of the PA um, are different types of memberships that they have with countries outside the organization. And by now, there's two separate categories from member states, proper speaking. One is the, the status of so-called associated states. Uh, currently, there's, there's four of them, namely Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore. And this, stat, uh, this status established the possibility that other states could join the PA as, as partners with which the, the PA would have a, a trade agreement, a free trade agreement, based on the, on the standards established by the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. And then finally, there's a whole range of observers with which the, the PA seeks closer economic cooperation, but short of uh, a full-fledged trade agreement itself. And uh, there's 57 economic observers at the moment, including the EU. Um, <clears throat> now, once again, I, I think that economic outlook or that outward orientation, let's put it that way, has, has certain advantages. Maybe the most immediate one of which is that a liberal economic outlook, uh, a bridge-building outlook, is valuable in and of itself at a time when economic protectionist ideas and, and uh, policies are on the rise in many parts of the world. Um, there's also long-standing debates on the economic impediments to regional integration in Latin America, the lack of economic complementarities. Many of the participating countries are based in selling or exporting primary commodities with relatively little value added. So there's certainly value in kind of reaching out further uh, and not confining themselves to uh, a region in which economic integration, trade liberalization by itself um, has, has been unable to fulfill the promises that will, have often been associated with this. Um, and I think a final advantage of the specific focus on economic issues is that the organization has been relatively unaffected to date by the political turmoil in the region, right? I'm thinking here of the Venezuelan crisis, which 
has torn the Unasur in shreds, which has really let Mercosur suffer, but the PA seems to have emerged relatively untarnished from the Venezuelan crisis. And I think that's partially due by its very specific, kind of relatively narrow focus. Now, the main problem that I see with the current type of outward orientation is that the PA has been able to seize the opportunity or the, the, has, has been able to move swiftly into the vacuum left by, uh, by the trade tensions between the US and China, the decline of APEC, the abandonment of the TPP, and kind of they've used that opportunity smartly in order to um, develop their own strategy of, of cooperation with Asia-Pacific economies. Um, <clears throat> That's been good. The question is, what's going to happen after? I mean, APEC is not dead, and we don't know what, what's going to happen to the TPP if the president in the United States changes again towards a more economics-friendly president eventually. So is the PA in its economic or in its cooperation profile really distinct enough from other inter or regional organizations in the region? in order to be able to, to make it survive after APEC and maybe TPP are potentially resurrected, right? There I have, I have doubts. I don't really see how the, how the PA is really distinct from other economic initiatives in the region. So let me conclude by kind of pulling together these, these two threads. I mean, I think a major value looking more towards Latin America itself is that it integrates Mexico more with the Latin American region. And if it manages to build a bridge, say, to Mercosur, then this would link the two largest economies in the region, which is certainly a big asset. At the same time, and Carlos probably knows this much better than I as an historian of Latin American, Latin America, I cannot really think of any historical examples, and the history of Latin America is very rich in all kinds of regional integration initiatives over many decades, um, of where uh, kind of an informal organization has really survived over long stretches of time. My impression is that there's kind of historically seen two options for these types of agreements. Either they're eventually abandoned and they kind of disappear because they don't manage to bridge potential uh, disagreements that exist between the member states, right? That would be LAFTA and ALADI and some of the arrangements like these. Or they become more institutionalized over time. Uh, and here I think Mercosur is still seen as being very little institutionalized, which I think is right, but it's more strongly institutionalized than the PA is. And I remember in the early 1990s, the debate in Mercosur was very similar to the one in the PA now. We're going to focus only on trade. We're not going to have institutions because these only hamper flexibility. And look at where Mercosur has come since. So I fear that in order to kind of stay around, the PA will have to have to change and probably become more institutionalized. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tobias. Uh, finally, we have a bilateral panel. Uh, Alicia spoke about the China impact in Latin America and Tobias about the Pacific Alliance. I have two questions, one for Alicia, another two for Tobias. For Alicia, 
it is clear that the main relation between China and Latin America is based in bilateral relations, state by state. There are no room today for global or by regional relation. The CELAC-China summit failed. Uh, we haven't any uh, output from this, the, these summits. So my question is, how uh, or what role could play China in the integration of Latin America? And from Tobias, uh, you mentioned well, Mercosur and the Pacific Alliance, but as you speak mainly about the Pacific Alliance. We have today many initiatives about the, a, a possible convergence between the two institutions, the Mercosur on the one hand and the Pacific Alliance in the other hand. It's very difficult, but what do you think about this, this process of convergence between the two institutions. And regarding the, the idea of the, the impact of the lack of co coherence in the governments of the Pacific Alliance, my, my idea is, is different because up to now, and excluding the Mexico case and the, the emergence of López Obrador as president of Mexico, the Pacific Alliance survived many change of governments in, in all the countries. In Peru, Alan García, Humala, etc. In Colombia, Uribe, Santos, Iván Duque. But in Chile, you have Piñera, uh, Bachelet and Piñera another time, and they uh, survive. In, in other Latin American integration systems, they fail. When they change governments, yeah. and the ALBA case is most, more clear, they fail. So, it's true that now, when with the emergence of López Obrador, the future of the Pacific Alliance is not so clear, but what, what is this, the real situation? Okay, Alicia, you first, please. Okay, so is China fostering regional integration? Regional integration. That's your question. That's your question. Well, it does have well, a straight answer. answer. I guess if I narrow it down to... Uh, uh, cross-country cross infrastructure projects, the answer is yes to some extent. In fact, I was looking at the number of projects. There's a trans-Pacific fiber optic cable that uh, China is financing in Chile. There's also a number of uh, railway connections, the bio-oceanic railway connection between Peru and Brazil. So, you know, there's a number of cross-border projects that China is trying to finance. So if I were to stop uh, the answer here, it would be yes, uh, to some extent, on the infraspace. 
But going back but to, going back to, uh, to uh, what I said about the Road Initiative, I've been a hub and spoke approach to, um, uh, to soft power, uh, much more than a multilateral Bretton Woods type approach, which the US has been following um, for many, many years. The answer would be no. And, and, and this is basically um, quite evident by looking at what China has been doing in other parts of the world. So if you look at the uh, China-Pakistan economic corridor, for example, it basically links um, Pakistan from south, uh, from Wadar uh, all the way to China to Xinjiang province, but it doesn't really sort of say not care because I guess it's very difficult to do that. Uh, link Pakistan to Afghanistan is, is very, you know, it's very, very risky as you can imagine. But the point is, and, and this is just in the mind of China's, um, I guess, China not yet being the global power that the US has always been, thinks bilaterally. It doesn't, really it, it doesn't really, it hasn't gotten to the point of thinking multilaterally. It may get there, but not yet. And there's many other examples. One would be uh, Europe, um, maybe um, to make things easier, China regionalizes a strategy. This is the 16 plus one, because there are too many small countries in Europe to deal with. But, uh, but it might not necessarily be an integration uh, strategy, but rather uh, some of individual countries on which to apply a hub and spoke approach. So, so that would be my reading of what's happening in the region. And, and thus, I don't think um, China will foster integration uh, because China is not Europe. Europe is, in a way, born with integration. China is a unified entity and thus doesn't understand this idea of, of regional integration. So it is just natural that it doesn't really. Thank you, Alicia. You asked two questions. One was on, on the convergence between the Pacific Alliance and Mercosur. Um, I know that everyone advocates this. So rhetorically, there's clear agreement between the major actors that this ought to happen. Um, <clears throat> I think at the practical level, there's good reasons why they haven't really moved beyond, much beyond rhetoric so far. And that is Mercosur would basically have to abandon its common external tariff if it wanted to converge with the Pacific Alliance. And even though there has been much debate over individual tariffs as part of that common external tariff, it has survived for almost 30 years now um, for good reasons. Um, the smaller economies do kind of benefit from being part of that larger market, whereas uh, Brazil was largely in a position to make its own common external tariff uh, be applicable to the whole group of countries. So for Brazil, it's also a tool of, of regional governance, if you want, uh, with its membering states. And Macri and Bolsonaro have been clear about wanting to abandon this, but they haven't really followed up in action. I think there is good reasons why they haven't really followed up in action because the price that Mercosur would have to pay in terms of its own economic cohesiveness also towards the outside would be rather large, I think. And the question about the value added of Mercosur, if, it's, if it abandons the common external tariff, would pose itself to Mercosur as it does 
already and will probably more so in the future to the Pacific Alliance. In a world in which there's many free trade agreements, right? what makes Mercosur really distinct then from other free trade agreements if it gives up on that common external tariff. So I think convergence is more difficult than might appear kind of at first sight and then, then rhetoric really suggests. On the second question, why has the PA survived while other um, regional organizations have collapsed um, when, when governments change? That's, I think, a tough one, but I would say there's two main, two main reasons. One is that despite changes in governments, there has been a basic consensus, or that there has been, there has continued to be a consensus on the, on the basic ideological orientation of the organization as such. So the very fact that this should help to connect the Pacific Rim economies towards its Asian Pacific counterparts has largely remained consensual among, among the, the main players despite changes in governments. And I think that has even, has carried the organizations, let's say, through hard times. That's one reason. The second reason is that the, it has to do with the substance of cooperation in the organization. It's very easy um, to maintain the low-level type of activities that, the P, that, that much of the PA's substance is based on, even in face of economic or ideological divergence, right? You can always go on a joint uh, investment promotion tour in, in, in the Asia-Pacific, if, even if you disagree on other social policy or economic issues, or putting together and pooling resources when it comes to embassies is something that's easily maintainable, so to speak, even in the face of ideological divergence. And at the same time, negotiating a range of free trade agreements is not so, it's not so time sensitive. So that is to say, you can negotiate an agreement, and when you don't continue with that due to ideological divergences, you just wait a couple more years till you negotiate the next one. Right? It's not, so the type of cooperation that the PA fosters is not so dependent on continuous type of, of activities than other organizations may be. And therefore, it's been easier for the organization, I think, also to survive in times when the governments themselves disagreed. Thank you, Tobias. Well, finally, we have a trilateral panel and no bilateral. Thank you, Matthias. The floor is yours. Well, th thank you very much for this uh, for this opportunity to speak to you. And first of all, my, my apologies for 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 having come late. But we've had a uh, change of management in the trade. We've got a new uh, director general, and uh, she's calling meetings at uh, at all moments and and and, and of all durations. Huh? So um, so so I was uh, I was I'm, I'm sorry, I was a bit late. Um, so. I'm unfortunately not uh, able to, 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 to build on and, and take into account what has been uh, said uh, until now. Um, um, but I, so I, I also apologize if I repeat something, but I think what I would want to do is to offer you uh, a couple of, uh, of short comments on, on, on how we, from a trade policy point of view, uh, see uh, the issue of uh, regional integration in, 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 in Latin America. And 
I mean, we probably do have uh, some basis upon, what to, or upon which to speak, because uh, we have, as you know, tried to engage with Latin America very much on the basis of, uh, of, of, of regional uh, integration, existing regional integration schemes, with uh, uh, successes in some uh, instances, and maybe with, with less success in, uh, in, in, other, in other instances. But I think, for, first of all, from, from our side uh, in, uh, in, in, in DD Trade, um, we have as, as, as a part of uh, our, our policy towards and our policy interaction with uh, Latin America uh, had to deal with regional integration as an important element. Um, and and we, have, we, have, we have done that because uh, we have been supporting as part of a larger EU, regional integration for uh, a number of years, of course, in, in, in Latin America. Partly because Latin America uh, wanted it themselves, and partly also because of the vocation of the EU to support regional integration schemes uh, in the world uh, when, uh, when, um, when, when these occurred. And of course, also in, uh, in, in the Caribbean. Um, <clears throat> the second reason was that in order to uh, negotiate free trade agreements, we felt that uh, in certain instances it uh, was uh, better to negotiate with groups rather than with individual countries. You know, we have individual agreements with Chile or Mexico, for example, but when it came to uh, Central America and when it came to uh, the Caribbean, we felt that the critical mass uh, for negotiating would only be obtained in case uh, there was uh, a, a joint uh, negotiation. It would simply be too complicated for us in terms of negotiation, taking it through the parliament, and in terms of also of administrating afterwards agreements if we would have had an individual agreement with each of the uh, with each of the uh, Central American countries, for example. Um, so, so we have negotiated uh, with, uh, with the regional blocs uh, which chose to negotiate with us and with, or with whom we more or less also maybe imposed a bit our wish to negotiate as a bloc. Um, and, and, and I think if we look at it, we can see that things uh, have gone well or has had certain consequences in, in some instances and have maybe not necessarily been uh, facilitative of, of the process. Um, let's, but, let, but, let's, but let's be concrete. I think uh, with uh, Central America, um, it was success. Uh, uh, Central America was able to attract the attention of, uh, of the EU to negotiate with us. And uh, we feel that what we have done there has contributed to uh, regional integration. Panama has mm, got a bit closer to SIECA, for example. And in terms of the implementation of the agreement, it has been quite uh, efficient. I mean, we've had yearly meetings with uh, all six uh, Central American countries, and it has worked uh, fairly, uh, fairly well. Um, with uh, the Andean community, it was a bit more difficult. Huh? Uh, the Andean community started out and saying, well, we'll have an association agreement, a negotiation with, uh, with the EU. Then uh, rather fast, uh, Bolivia thought that that was not such a good idea because of change of regime. Um, Ecuador also left uh, the party uh, a bit later in 2010. Uh, and we were then left with um, a 
uh, agreement or with a negotiation with, with, with two countries to which we adapted quite uh, rapidly uh, to make a, a, a multi-party agreement with Colombia and Peru, uh, which I think then in terms of, shall we say, the broader policy objective of, of regional integration was, was successful because we had a very good agreement with, with the two countries, quite um, pragmatic. Uh, it's an agreement, a multi-party. Uh, so, um, differently from the agreement we have with Central America, it's not uh, the same uh, uh, customs uh, tariffs uh, for, for these two countries, um, but, 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 we, but it, it did the job. It was, however, uh, quite complicated for us institutionally. We had to change horses, so, so to speak, in, in the middle of, of the river, we had to get a new negotiation mandate. We were probably doing some institutional acrobatics, which it would not be possible for us to, to do today. But then uh, Ecuador uh, joined, and now we understand uh, that uh, Bolivia might also uh, consider joining. Um, that's at least some of the signals we've heard from, from the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs there. Um, and these negotiations were fairly, were fairly, uh, were fairly uh, 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 time efficient and resource efficient, I think. Let's now look at Mercosur. I think uh, Mercosur has certainly been uh, 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 a challenge as a negotiation. Um, it's been a challenge, of course, of, because of the well-known sensitivities uh, that, you, that you all know in terms of agriculture. But I think it's also really been uh, complicated for us to, dis to, to have a negotiation with a, with a partner which is made up of such uh, different uh, players, a giant, a somewhat big adolescent, and two very small players, huh? and with very, 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 very different uh, interests, very uh, different uh, sensitivities, uh, and without a real uh, history uh, of successfully negotiating uh, agreements with other uh, with other countries, I, I think I, are we speaking Chatham House rules, yeah, right? Yeah, that's good. Is on the record. On the record, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, Right. <laughs> I can see the number of embassies here, but okay. But I think I'm, I'm, I'm being fairly. I'm not saying anything which is, which is, uh, which is, uh, which, which is a secret. But I think it's really been quite, quite complicated uh, to to have this negotiation with, uh, with with Mercosur. And I think part of it has been that there has been quite four four different countries, different in size, and also quite different in political cycles. Huh? And we've had that situation, of course, and when we've had. In, in the space of the time that we've negotiated with Mercosur, well, we've, uh, we've actually had one agreement with Mexico and we've uh, modernized uh, the, that agreement. So uh, that's, that's, that's certainly something where we have to say, well, has it been, has, has this idea of, of a regional integration really been, been useful or facilitative for their relations with us? I think that's, that's a question. Now, Looking at the future, what, what, what I mean, we can see the regional integration is something that continues in, in, in Latin America and the, and the Caribbean. Um, regional integration uh, bodies uh, emerge and they die. Uh, ALBA, at a certain moment, was a regional integration uh, initiative. It doesn't look as if it's so active today. There's the Pacific Alliance now, uh, which, is, which is there, and which we are thinking about for several years now what we should do with, because there's a lot of commonalities, but it's also countries with all, all of which we have, we have uh, 
we have uh, we have free trade agreements. So 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 we've been dancing a bit about the, the hot pot there and say, well, what should we do with with, with the Pacific Alliance? Um, and I think the question is still out there. We've just agreed a. a, a a, a memorandum of understanding with them, or a joint declaration that that we will that we will that we will that we will uh, collaborate further. But in, in terms of trade, I would think uh, I think the question is really out there: What should we do more? What can we do more uh, than than what we actually already doing through these uh, these, uh, these these agreements? And uh, <clears throat> I think then there's the last uh, question on on on, on integration, which is really in the the, the meta level. Um, Latin America and the Caribbean, do they feel that they should use regional integration as, a, as an instrument for engaging with the world and with other partners as a region as such, or is it too big and unwieldy and are the differences inside Latin America and Caribbean simply too big for them to be, uh, to be, to be efficient? Selak uh, for us, I think, as, as a DT trade, as, as a trade policy interlocutor, has been quite useful. This idea that you bring together uh, leaders, that you bring together trade ministers, that you bring together uh, ministers of foreign affairs on a regular basis is something that has, to a very large extent, uh, created spaces of communication, spaces of, 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 of encounters, also between maybe the partners and the players on each side, which don't normally come into uh, touch uh, with each other. Uh, we don't have these meetings uh, so much for, for a couple of years, because CELAC uh, at least uh, has decided not to, uh, to, to, to engage so much uh, with, the, with the EU on, on, on the level of, 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 of leaders. Um, and I think um, I think that's uh, I think that's uh, that's that that's an issue which I which 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 we need to take into account. We have less channels of communication that we have uh, before, and I think uh, that that that's a bit of a shame. Huh? Uh, uh, negotiation and interest come from knowing each other, and to know each other, you need to uh, talk to each other. And for the moment, we don't have all the channels uh, that we had before, and maybe all the not all the channels that the uh, that the uh, that the uh, that the uh, relation uh, um, deserves. And also in a situation in which both Latin America and the EU is uh, occupied, or maybe preoccupied somehow, with its relations either to Asia and China uh, or, uh, or or to the U.S. So that's just a couple of introductory remarks. Thank you, Matthias. Uh, it's true that you said that now CELAC is paralyzed, and so make a lot of problems to the bi-regional relation. But you spoke also about Mercosur and the EU-Mercosur negotiations. This morning, uh, Edita Herta uh, spoke about the same thing, and he said that in, his, in, in her regards, uh, a positive conclusion of the negotiation could be. But she hasn't all the clues in, in her hands. What's your opinion about these negotiations? Do you think that it's possibly a happy end? Or, or we made... Uh, regarding a new year, a new year, 
next year in Jerusalem. Um, I think there is uh, now. Let's let's see where where are we now? Uh, where have we come from, and where are we now? I think people say this has been a very long uh, negotiation, uh, and it's true. It's been very long. It started in '99 or 2000. That depends a bit upon how, how how you see the process. But it is also true that for a number of years, a considerable number of years. There was no, there were no meetings, or there was no real progress. Huh? That's uh, that's, uh, that's quite clear, and I think that reflects the fact, as I said, that um, complicated negotiation negotiation partners are on both sides, and also I think very different expectations on on, on what this um, uh, negotiation would, re would result in on, on on each side. However, I think since 2016. Uh, uh, we've really seen a, a step change in uh, in this uh, in this negotiation. There has been, I think, more. Uh, uh, there's been stronger interest um, in, uh, in, uh, in 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 Mercosur uh, to to open up and to open up or to and to see their possibility of an agreement, to see the, uh, an agreement with the EU as as a possibility to gain market access, to lock in reform, and to reform their economies. I think that's uh, that's uh, that's that, that's one factor, and on the other side, uh, I think particularly on our side, it's clear that since 2016, or in particular to, since 2017, it's, it's clear that uh, the uh, international trade relations, multilateral trade relations, which are in a real moment of crisis. I would like to underline that, and we are in a real moment of crisis when it comes to multilateral uh, trade uh, relations. Are, are more are more uncertain. So there, there's an interest in strengthening uh, and creating the kind of uh, rules-based, the basis for rules-based trade with, uh, with with Mercosur that we believe uh, is uh, really something fundamental and and highly beneficial for us in our relations with uh, with, uh, with, with with third countries. Um, there is, uh, I think, there's, there's been good progress since 2016. You know that there are some difficult issues uh, out there. We have some very important uh, needs from our sides when it comes to the trade area. They are not secrets. You've seen them from the public reports, which exist from uh, from the negotiation meetings, in terms of maritime transport, in terms of market access for industrial goods, in terms of market access for for uh, for agricultural goods, in terms of uh, geographical indications, maritime services, as I said. On the one hand, and on the other hand, there is uh, a legitimate expectation from the side of Mercosur to also have this deal be worth its while huh? in, in terms of market access uh, to, uh, to, uh, to 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 the EU. Um, uh, and 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 I think the I think the the key questions are really uh, are really are really quite clear now. Um, there's also uh, I think an understanding that there's a window. Of uh, possible opportunity, uh, which uh, will close uh, fairly soon because it's election time in Argentina, it's election time in uh, in Uruguay uh, very soon. It's uh, with change of guard in, uh, in 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 Europe with the Commission. So uh, if we do it, if we want to do it, it should be uh, it should be uh, it should be now. 
I think there's a lot uh, from this to gain from uh, from 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 both sides. Uh, but to go the final the final the final mile, I think it will take uh, it will take. Um, it will take real political decisions from each side because it's clear that neither we nor, nor Mercosur will want to uh, conclude an agreement uh, which is uh, unilateral or which is not balanced in its components. We have always said and we have always repeated with Mercosur that what we need to conclude is a balanced, comprehensive an ambitious uh, agreement. It's something that we need to be able to, to sell to our stakeholders. Uh, the, the, the council, uh, the member states, uh, and uh, and our and our industry, our consumers, and it's also something that needs to be ratified uh, uh, in the in the side of uh, of our Mercosur. Huh? And I think if you go into a negotiation um, with that kind of uh, perspective, and we are we are working together with Mercosur, which are just as democratic as as, as we are. Well, I, I think I think those are very important perspectives. I'm hopeful, um, but um, well, I'm optimistic. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's something that's something that's something else. I think, but it's clear for me that there is a possible window of opportunity. I think there's a strong commitment from both sides. There's a willingness to work, and those are already the basic ingredients for for for, for trying to move forward. Whether we'll be able to really do it, uh, we we will have to see. Thank you, Matthias. That is a. Uh good way to put an end to, to this panel. Thank you very much, Alicia. Good luck. And thank you, you all. <laughs>